Hi folks and welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you for the last time, and only for the introduction segment, for the absolute last time from Arlington, Texas. Today is a special show. Yesterday was the last official show. Today is the last time I'll ever be speaking to you from this location. Um, and I have some special words of thanks to uh, to give you today after we take care of the housekeeping. And what's today's show going to be? Today's show has actually been pre-recorded. It's, a sh- it's actually an interview that I did with a group of guys doing a show called Rational Public Radio. Uh, it was a great interview. I had a great time doing it. And once the housekeeping is over, we'll just cut into that. I won't be here tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow I will be unloading all the stuff that we're convoying with today. And Thursday I'll be back and we'll do another round of the money-saving show. And I've got some really cool stuff coming in the near future. I want to tell you a little bit about that. I want to make today's housekeeping more than just taking care of our sponsors. But I want to do that as well. We do have sponsors to take care of today. Sponsor of the day, number one, ShelfReliance.com. I love ShelfReliance because... They are one of the most innovative food storage companies I've ever seen. Come up with great products. They let you eat what you store and store what you eat. And on top of that, they have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Some of the best tasting, largest variety I've ever seen in long-term storage food. And stuff you can actually get right now. A lot of the other stuff that we've come to rely on, like Mountain House, Providing Pantry, and others, are very, very backlogged. And there is some backlog with some of the Thrive products right now. But most of it, you can get it in a reasonable amount of time. So, uh... Check out ShelfReliance.com today. Next up today, the Berkey Guy. Long-term loyal sponsor has been with us, it just seems like, forever. And there's a reason. Great product. He takes great care of the audience. The audience loves the Berkey Guy. Supports the MSB. Great product. Great service. What else could you ask for? And remember, water is something you have to have. If you don't have it, you die. It is that simple. It is intrinsic to your survival. Berkey will help make that water safe to drink in an emergency situation, and it will help make the water we drink every day safer to drink by getting rid of things like chlorine uh, and some of the other nasties that are in our water like fluoride. Berkey's what I use. It's what I think you should use, too. Um, also today, since I'm going to be, uh, I said this yesterday, I'm going to say it again today, since I'm not going to do a show Wednesday, I'm kind of apologizing by extending the sale that I was just running over the weekend. I'm going to run it right through Wednesday, uh, 20% off any membership, that includes a monthly membership, or a three-month membership, or six-month, or a year, whatever one you want, 20% off the total cost, discount code 20, T-W-E-N-T-Y. Uh, remember, if you're a veteran, email me, it might be a little bit long getting back to you, but you get a better and you get a recurring discount if you are a veteran, uh, prior military service, or active duty military service. One thing I want to say today, I've had people email me, I'm in the Coast Guard, does that count? You bet your ass it counts. I've had people email me and go, well, I was in the National Guard or the Reserves, does that count? You bet your ass it counts. There's plenty of guys from the National Guard and Reserves getting their ass shot at right now. Uh, anybody that doesn't think those guys are serving us doesn't really understand the way the military works. When I went through basic, there were National Guard and Reservists standing right beside me going through basic. So, absolutely. If you served Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, or the reserves thereof, you are a veteran or a active duty service member in my eyes, and you qualify for our discount. So email me for that discount code. Now I want to 
really kind of take a moment to say something. This is really not a typical intro thing. This is a, about the fact that this is the last show coming to you from Arlington. I cannot believe what has happened over the last almost three years now and how far that we've come together as a community. And I am so grateful to every single one of you that's listened to my show, that's shared it with others. And I want to assure you of something. Once this is done, it's not like things go into a coast mode or something like that. The best is yet to come. I have so many things I've wanted to do, so many things I've wanted to bring to you, so much content I've wanted to create for you, so many books I've wanted to finish, so much video that I've wanted to shoot, so many events that I've wanted to set up and go attend so that I can meet with you in person and shake your hand. There is so many things I've wanted to do that being in this flux uh, has not allowed. And not having a regular office and regular scheduling and things like that. There's so much of that that I want to do for you. And I'm going to be able to do that now. But I want to be clear, I couldn't have done any of it without you. And that's all of you. I want to send out a special thank you, not just to those who have listened and shared the show, but to those sponsors out there who have supported the show. Thank every single one of you, current and, and previous sponsors of the show. And this is something interesting about our sponsors. I think a lot of people are out there buying time on shows that they've never heard. They just like their marketing guy says it's a good demographic match and they just do a media buy. I would say that all of our current sponsors and most of our prior sponsors were listeners to the show before they became sponsors. They were part of the community. I think that's very special. I think that says as much about the audience and the sponsors as it does about me or the show itself. I'd like to thank all of you that have taken part in our forum. I'd like to thank every single one of you that today... I can actually say this is the last time I'm coming to you from the middle of a city and tell you the next time I, call, I talk to you, I'll be coming to you from a ridgeline of a small town, like I've done several times before, but it will be always be that in the future. Thank you so much. And if you are still wanting to help, keep sharing the show. That's how we got where we are, and that's what we can do even more together. Thank all of you so much. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce this segment. Again, this is me on Rational Public Radio. Great interview, some good thought-provoking questions, and uh, I will see you guys again on Thursday. You're about to listen to a special edition of Rational Public Radio. For today's show, we have special guest Jack Spierko from the Survival Podcast. A lot of our listeners have been pretty worried about the economy, things that are going to come in the future, and what they can do to prepare for it. Jack is... Well, he's a professional survival podcaster, and he is really knowledgeable on the subject. We're hoping he can help you get a preparedness plan and get your life on the right track in case times get tough, or even if they don't. Hey, welcome to Rational Public Radio today. This is Jeff Meek, and with me is Scott Connery. Hi, everybody. How you doing? And today we have a very special guest with us, Jack Spierko from the Survival Podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. We're going to be talking about uh, the important elements of survival. Jack is an expert at this, and he's going to share some of his incredible knowledge with us today. So, uh, Scott, why don't you go ahead and kick it off? Well, first, I think we need to talk about why we should prepare. I think a lot of our audience is kind of on board with this, but maybe they're not. Maybe there's some spouses out here who aren't. So tell us about why you think it's responsible to be prepared. Well, I actually think it's irresponsible not to be prepared because, I mean, all we have to do really to understand the reasoning for this is just go back 50 years and look at the way our grandparents lived. If you would have told your grandmother or your grandfather, hey, you know what, it would be a good idea to have a little bit of food put away before winter comes, he would have looked at you like you fell off the uh, the truck yesterday and wondered what the heck was wrong with you and why you would even think that there was anything, you know, unusual about that. 
there's so many things out there that threaten our lives as individuals, and that's where we really have to start. And what I mean by that is whenever anybody hears survival, they think, oh, the black helicopters are coming, or, you know, there's a, the Noah flood is returning, or, got, you know, Chernobyl and, and all four, all, all, all six continents, uh, nuclear reactors going off because the grid failed, or, or whatever. But the reality is that none of that stuff's actually happened any time that anybody can remember. But, you know, last year, nine million people lost their jobs. And a little bit of preparedness for that goes a long way toward more typical disasters like the tsunami that we just saw, uh, coupled with an earthquake in Japan and the resulting nuclear fallout. Now, I'm not running around eating potassium iodide right now, and I don't think you should be either, but I'd be pretty concerned if I lived in Tokyo right now. And that's a lesson for us here. We've got every major uh, organization that monitors the food supply telling us that we're going to be short on food for the next three years at least, and I don't see that getting any better. The number one export the United States has today is topsoil in the form of it blowing away in the wind and landing in the oceans. So we know that we're destroying our farmland. With our, there's a thing called the Ogala Aquifer. This is an underground sea that runs from Canada to South Texas. It's drying up. We know it's drying up because places we pump the water out, there ain't no water there anymore. So we know we've got food shortages to worry about. We know we've got natural disasters to worry about. And then there's mundane, everyday things like you go to work and they say, hey, we've appreciated the fact that you've come here and poured your hearts and guts and soul into this company for 25 years. You have 10 minutes to clean out your desk. Goodbye. So all of these things kind of add up to where it just makes sense to have a preparedness plan. You said the word plan. Would... Would you characterize that as probably the most important element toward survival? You definitely have to have a plan because there are people that have been in various disaster scenarios. Say somebody that's sitting up on a mountaintop in a cabin just on vacation and a forest fire rages. And that person actually had everything they needed to do to kind of protect their cabin and eventually extract themselves if they couldn't succeed. And yet that person ended up sitting there and dying. Now you'd think, why if they had all the resources, weren't they able to act? Well, it comes down to normalcy bias, and, and it's, that's probably the most critical thing that holds people back is normalcy bias. So people want to have a feeling that everything is safe, everything is okay. There's a primal instinct inside the human being that kept us alive for, for, for thousands and thousands of years, and just because we don't think we need it anymore doesn't mean it's gone. And this was the instinct that you were standing outside of your little hunting camp back you know, 5,000 years ago on the savannah, and there was a leopard in the grass 15 feet away. And in one leap, he could get you. But he was sitting there evaluating the situation. You didn't see him, you didn't hear him, you didn't smell him, but the hackles went up on your neck and you withdrew back to the safety of your camp. That is a very uncomfortable feeling. And for most people, when you start talking about survivalism, pandemic, anything like we see going on today, it's somewhere else, it's some time else, and it's not me because they don't like that, that, that feeling of being exposed, that feeling that the predator is out there. When you start planning, you have to accept that there is danger when you make the plan. As soon as you start to formulate the plan for yourself, you start to think about scenarios that could go wrong and where you would actually need it. And you start to think rationally because you think, you know, I don't think I really need a whole bunch of seeds when I've never planted a garden in my life. So then you say to yourself, since I don't know how to do that, maybe that's a skill I need to gain. Or maybe I need to store food that's already available for myself. So the plan is critical, but it's more than just having the plan so you can act. 
It's having the plan because the plan itself will pull you out of this illusion that everything's just wonderful. And you see the extreme version in the movie where grandma's sitting in her rocking chair knitting and there's like, you know, there's like a fire coming or something and all the kin are trying to get her out of there and she's just like, everything's fine. Or that lady you want to slap in every disaster movie. That's normalcy bias and extreme. And it's very easy for us to recognize it when it's extreme. It's very difficult for us to recognize it in every day. Planning pulls you out of that. Well, and I think it's easy to recognize when it's someone else instead of yourself. That it's a lot easier to find problems with other people and what they're doing than it is with yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I spent years as a business consultant, right? And I could go into somebody else's business and in 15 minutes diagnose every problem and give them a plan to get out of it. And then I'd go back to my own business and it was running poorly. Well, it's the same thing. It's an internal thing. There's a certain emotional attachment we get to our own lives and the way we're doing things. And one of the reasons that, that when you have like spousal res resistance here, that women tend to be more resistant than men, and it's not always the case. I've got a lot of listeners that are women that are trying to get their husbands on board with this, but it's definitely the majority the other way. Women have more of a pain when they think about their child being at risk or their selves being at risk or their home being at risk. You know, you say something to your wife like, I want to go out and get trained and get a firearm and, and carry a gun for defense, and she'll resist that. And maybe she doesn't even dislike guns. She just, just dislikes the thought that you might need the gun. That means there's a threat. And this is the big, big thing. And yes, when it's you, it's so easy to dismiss. When you see it in somebody else, like so many other things, it's instant and you can identify it. Where can your listeners hear this? Uh, my show is located at uh, thesurvivalpodcast.com or thesurvivalpodcast.com, depending on what part of the country you're from, whether you say the or the. Uh, we have about 636 episodes as of this morning, and we cover all aspects of preparedness. It's completely free to download all of the episodes. Great. Good to know. Okay, so let's talk about some of the, the range of this. So obviously there's, there's the possibility that that one in one million asteroid is going to smack the Earth and then down to, well, hey, you know, thanks for the 25 years. So there's, that's a, that covers a pretty wide range. And it seems to me that you can't cover everything all at once. Yeah, but how, how do you set up a plan to start attacking that methodically? Well, what you do is you, you have to look at what I call an inverse relationship between impact scale and probability. And the most probable things have the lowest impact scale, not in the way they affect the person that receives the impact, but how many people they affect. So one type of a, a disaster that could happen to a family is dad goes off to work and his car gets hit by a 10-wheeler and he t it turns his car into a metal coffin and he's gone. And we've lost a spouse. That's a huge impact to the family, but it's a relatively minor impact even to the neighborhood. And it's certainly a minor impact to the state, the nation, and the globe. But it's the most probable type of disaster. You're going to get fired. You're going to lose a loved one. Somebody's going to come down with cancer. Uh, you're going to be a localized storm that rips the roof off of two or three homes. The impact on that might not even make the nightly news, you know, even with a, you know, the news loves to show a house with a, with a roof missing. But honestly, it's maybe five minutes in the sun and gone. But that is the most likely thing that's going to happen. People, though, focus on the other end of the spectrum, like uh, economic collapse or like a global pandemic or an asteroid or a comet hitting the planet, which it's going to happen. You and I hopefully will never see it. It might be a million years from today. Sooner or later it's going to happen. But the odds of us experiencing it are very low. But people that focus on that will say, yeah, but the impact is so much bigger. Yeah, but the probability is smaller. 
So what we do is we start down on what you call the boring or the mundane end of the spectrum when we start preparing what would we do if we lost a job? What if dad got killed on the way to work? What if we lost our home? What if the neighborhood was in, in disaster? And we go from there and we build to something like a Katrina level event or, you know, 9-11 really had a huge economic impact, but there was a physical impact zone outside of just the Twin Towers, all the people that lived in southern Manhattan. So we prepare for that level. Now you think that's like, well, then how do I get really prepared for the big one? Well, if it's right. a huge one, right, a killer comet, your troubles are over. You know right. what? Have a beer on the roof and watch it go up, right? <laughs> right, right? But if it's if it's if it's anything down from that, if you prepare first to lose your job and then prepare to have a neighborhood level disaster and then prepare for a regional level disaster, by that point, you're probably 90% to the level of preparedness that you could get to anyway. And all of a sudden you actually can stand up and do a lot better during a national disaster. And it, at that point it becomes very easy to tweak and advance. The big thing is you have to analyze your own life, what your risk tolerances are, what your skills are, and I have all this information about what can be done, but you have to pick and choose and build it for yourself because if you don't, you won't own it. And it's like the people that go out to exercise and they hire a personal trainer, and he says, I do 147 pull-ups a day. You should too. Yet you do three, and you're like, this guy's a clown, and you're out of there, and you never get in shape. You have to build your plan, just like a fitness plan or a diet plan, your preparedness plan to yourself and your family at the level you're comfortable and within your means. You came to me and said, Jack, I've, I'm worth $150 million and I want a preparedness plan. I'd probably get you a consultant and say, go off and put a bomb shelter in and stock up for 30 years and right. be happy. Put a lake in and put fish in and, and, and hire a gardener to take care of everything for you. If you make $750 an hour, we're in a totally different world. So to try to put a one-size-fits-all plan to people doesn't work. Instead, what we do is we teach five fundamentals, and that is the things that we need to survive. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need energy, and we need security. So you build your plan around those five things. Okay, so let's go through those one by one and start laying out a plan. Um, we'll do kind of a typical suburban, middle-class family. So you know we're not going to worry about the multimillionaires because they can probably figure out how to take care of themselves. And the guy making minimum wage, he's going to have trouble just meeting rent tomorrow. So how is he going to be able to get extra done on top of that? Well, let's start with the food. So if, if you said to me, I want to start storing food, what do I do? Who, what company do I order food from or whatever I'd say from your local supermarkets where you're going to start? Every day you eat something. And that's why food is the, the, the critical core to this whole thing. Because, you know, we talk about security, so we'll get to owning a gun, but... If you have a gun and you have no food, you have nothing to defend, and you can't eat bullets, and if you do, you eat them once, right? <laughs> so so what you, when you look at food, you say to yourself, well, what do, what do I eat and what does my family eat? Because dad might think like, well, we can get a couple cases of MREs, and if we get hungry enough, we'll eat them. Well, that's going to work real well with your six-year-old, okay? so Who's never had one before. Never had one before, and maybe you haven't either, but you think you'll eat it, and then you open up, uh, if you get an old one, you get this omelet with ham, and that's... I think I'd starve. I'd go cut tree bark before I ate that. But if you just take a simple notebook, and I mean a 50-cent notebook, lay it on the table in your house, and every time you eat something for the next couple weeks, write down what you eat, you're going to end up with something that looks very much like your weekly shopping list. And then all you're going to do is let's say that one of the things that your kids eat all the time is SpaghettiOs. Now, I actually think they're god-awful, but it's not about me. It's about you. If that's what you eat, when mom goes to the store, instead of buying one or two cans of SpaghettiOs, she buys maybe four. Now, she puts them into her, her pantry, and she pulls one out of the front, and then she puts that on the list for next week. But when she goes back, she doesn't buy one. She buys two. It's called copy canning. 
very, very simple, very low-tech entryway into food storage, and it's really a soft sell to the resistant spouse because we're just putting a little more stuff into the pantry. We're not right? buying anything weird. There's no yeah, well, of MREs. Well, let me ask a question those. here. You, you mentioned um, something about comfort food. And it seems to me that makes a lot of sense when you're in a disaster-type situation that you, you would want to gravitate toward food that you feel comfortable with when Correct. you're already in a high-stress situation. Especially that, right? for children. Especially for children. Because most disasters, let's be honest, are not the end of the world as we know it. They're not you know, going to last even a month. They're a couple days. And a lot of times... Parents aren't even scared because they know, okay, the lights are out. It's really cold in the house, but we have some backup heat. It was an ice storm. Eventually, the men will come and put the, the lines back up because it's a local storm. But the kids are scared. Now, if you could sit them down to a great big hot steaming plate of uh, macaroni and cheese because you have a way to cook and you have extra macaroni and cheese and you don't have to go out. And I mean, this is the other thing. Even if you can get to the store, you're going to out risk your life and leave your kids alone in the middle of a disaster. It's absolutely insane. So having those types of comfort foods, don't forget the pets either. Be prepared to take care of your pets. Because the last thing you want to do is have to evacuate, and you got to tell a kid he's leaving behind his golden retriever. I mean, the, tra the trauma to a child in that situation is unbelievable. So you have to have a way to care for your pets. When they evacuated people from Katrina, they said you can't bring your animals unless you can, you can provide for them. There was a lot of misinformation about that, like they had to leave their animals. They could bring their animals, but they had to have a way to provide for them. Now, obviously, if you're going to live in a homeless shelter, you can't provide for them. So you have to have a plan for some place to go as well. Um, but on the food, comfort foods definitely, but that is a start. There is a place for rice and beans. There is a place for long-term storage food. But every family in America should be able to get 30 days' worth of resiliency into their pantry by just storing extra of the food they eat every day. And then when mom goes to the store and they jack the price up on Skippy peanut butter, and that's the only thing Johnny will eat, well, I've got six cans, so I'm not buying it this week. And when they put it on sale or she gets a coupon, now she takes opportunity to buy and buys three or four jars of it and continues to build up. So now we're actually saving money. People think this costs money, and it does cost a little more on a weekly basis initially, but once you do it over a period of time, it costs less money because it's like gasoline. You fill your tank because you're going to use the gas anyway. Well, fill your pantry because you're going to eat the food anyway. Right. Well, and that goes back to a principle that I know I've heard you say before of store what you eat and eat what you store. That a lot of people going to the pallet of MREs, they're never actually going to eat those MREs. And so they'll get thrown out 10 or 15 years from now and they'll say, oh, I wasted hundreds of dollars on this. Whereas with the copy canning, you don't have that same problem. Correct. And I mean, I'm not bashing MREs. There's a place for them. If you have to pick up and go, having a case or two of them, you know, two cases, you've got 24 meals. And they are complete full meals. And you're not going to be real happy, but you could literally live on one a day and still keep your caloric uptake uh, quite well because it's designed for soldiers to provide just that. You're going to lose weight, but you're going to stay alive. So those types of food, and then the long-term storage foods like the Mountain House, the uh, Providing Pantry, Yoder's Meats, all of these Alpine Air, uh, Thrive Long-Term, so all these number 10 cans and the stuff that we typically think of with survivalism, there's a place for that as well. And if you think about it this way, if every family in America can build up 30 days in their pantry and 30 days worth of commercial long-term storage, and maybe not all commercial long-term storage, but things you can do for yourselves, like storing, yes, rice, beans, wheat, and things like that, pasta. Pasta is one of the great survival foods. Kids like it. Adults like it. It damn near lasts forever. And uh, it's cheap. So maybe you don't eat pasta every day, but most families eat it once or twice a week. So it's a perfect example of eat what you store, store what you eat. 
You kind of put that together, and I am a big fan of coming up with some level of individual production. That could be gardening, that could be hunting, it could be fishing, it could be foraging. The big thing when I say that is I don't want people to think the stupid redneck mentality of, well, if something goes wrong, I'll just go kill a deer. Well, uh, don't you think all your other buddies are going to do that too? So (laughs) that's a piece of the whole. And, yes, one deer added into this holistic model Uh, is a lot of protein added into the family over some time. But you also have to have the skill to hunt it, know what to do with it, how to preserve it. And you also have to think about it, unless it is the end of the world as we know it, you ain't going to shoot a deer in August because they're going to put you in a place called jail. Now, at least they'll feed you there, but who's taking care of your family while you're getting three squares in Iraq? Well, and how many people who, say, live in the middle of a major city in a disaster are going to be traveling out somewhere I mean, hopefully you have a deer lease a couple hours away, but maybe you don't even have that. How are you going or, to or spare the get, gas? Even get there, whatever. The people in suburbia, they're probably in, in the urban environments, are going to probably be more likely to be living on rat and raccoon and possum and cat before they ever see one piece of venison. And uh, I hope they don't, and that's why I believe you should store some food. One of the other uh, elements you mentioned was water, and it seems to me that in a particularly in an urban setting, this is one of the most difficult items to prepare for because you know without at least if you're without power and water pumps aren't working and, and you don't live in a in a in an environment where you have acres of storage capacity what do you do about water well the first thing is to realize the resources that you already have in your home most homes have at least two toilets the back tank on the toilets is potable water you can drink it it's the same water that comes out of the tap doesn't apply to the bowl, the back tank. The other thing is most homes have a hot water heater, usually 50 gallons or greater. You can have a, a plumber come in and put what's called a low-pressure uh, uh, backflow preventer valve. You don't want a complete backflow preventer, but low-pressure backflow prevention. Uh, high pressure would, well, a plumber won't do it for you. It would turn your water tank into a bomb. Uh, but a low-pressure backflow uh, preventer. Uh, and then, once a year, clean out the bottom of your hot water tank, and you've got 50 gallons of water sitting there at all times without doing anything other than putting that valve in. To make sure if pressure's lost, what you're doing that for is the water doesn't go back into the system and drain out of your tank. So those are two very simple things. Another thing you can do, if you have a garden, go get a couple of big water barrels. And even if you don't catch rainwater off the roof, plumb them together. Water seeks uh, equilibrium. So if you have pipes connecting the barrels, they'll all fill at the same rate. Run the hose in one side of the barrel and the hose out the other side of the barrel. Every time you water your, your garden, you're rotating your water immediately. And if you have four barrels, you could easily have 400 gallons of water there. That's going to get you through a lot of things. Have a means to purify water. More likely than the water not coming on is going to be, uh, we have a boil water advisory during this disaster. Well, if you don't have any electricity, Boiling water is hard, even if you have propane for your for your grill or charcoal for your grill or other methods to do things. That fuel is valuable. So now you're using it to boil water. Well, if you have a nice filtration system like what I personally recommend is a Berkey system, you can filter water and you can you can make that water safe to drink. So it's it's again it's a holistic approach because there's a finite storage capacity to water. It's much easier to store a large amount of calories than a large amount of water. Water's heavy. It's bulky, and it's just it takes up a lot of space. So you have to have a purification method, and it really makes a lot of sense to know all the things that are already in your home that will work for this. The last thing is they make these bags that are designed more for when you know it's coming, like there's a hurricane coming and this might happen. You put them into your bathtub, and you go ahead and you fill them up, and you cap them off. 
uh, that lays there and all that weight basically seals the uh, drain because what happens a lot of times when the water goes off, the sewers also back up. So the problem is if you just filled your bathtub, well, the sewer is going to back up, push the plug up, and all the sewage is going to run into your, your, your bathtub. Now you can't drink that. So you put all of that together and you can get through most situations. Ideally, you have a pool or a pond with a large reserve of water and a method of both chemical and physical filtration. I think that wraps up uh, food and water pretty thoroughly there. Let's move on to the next fundamental. Uh, I guess I'd say the next in this is going to be shelter, which is something that we all overlook because most of us have homes. Uh, but we have to think about the damage that can occur to our shelter or the inadequacy of our shelter in a period of, of disaster. So if it happens during the winter, our shelters may still be there and it's better than nothing, but we don't have our heat anymore. Uh, if we have a bad storm, we may lose our roof and our shelter becomes four walls without a roof. Uh, if this happens in the summer, we have heat. And now most, most people can get through a, a hot situation better than a cold one. They're less likely to be damaged as long as they're drinking enough water. But what if you have an infant child? You have an infant child at a home when it's 107 degrees outside and you have no way to cool that house. You've got a real problem. So shelter and energy start to kind of blend together by necessity because of the way we live our lives today. We don't build our shelters anymore to be designed to get air to flow through them naturally. We build them to hold air in, to insulate. As long as everything's working, that's a great idea. But as soon as we turn off the air conditioner, we turn off the heater, that starts to fall apart. And then there's a skill set here as well. If it's really cold and you have no source of heat in your home, uh, what most people want to do is try to figure out how to heat the house, where what you really want to do is heat the individual. And there's a lot of um, resilient ener radiant energy from human beings. And what you would do in that situation, you have mom, dad, and two kids, take the couch, take the cushions, and basically make like when you're a little kid a fort and create a small area. And if everybody gets in there together on a cold night, you're going to stay warm. Whereas if you light a fire in the fireplace and it's just a plain old fireplace, 90% of the heat from that fireplace is going up the flute. And you'd be probably much better off using a cocoon approach. So a lot of this stuff gets very involved when we look at shelter. But the big thing we have to look at with shelter for the urban, suburban population is what do I do when I have to leave? Because where am I going to go? You hear a lot on the, the forums and the, and the chat rooms and all, I'm going to bug out to the National Forest. And just like Bubba and the Deer, don't you think some other people just might be there in the spot you thought you Go try to reserve a camping space in one of our state or national parks in June or July when everybody's already done. You can't get a place then. So you think you're going to bug out to these? I mean, it's just not realistic. So you have to have a plan of where to go. Now, that could be a hotel room. Um, if it's a regional disaster, right? And that's the most likely thing you're going to have to leave for. But it might be a good idea to have a plan of several different locations. So what I tell people as far as the, is the, the bug out side of things is have at least three destinations and three routes planned to each one. Because you don't know that that main route that's going out of there, well, everybody else is going to take that so it's clogged up or the government shuts it down for a reason or the threat that's making you move is in that, in that particular path. So... You're in Fort Worth, and you're planning to bug out to East Texas, for instance. Well, the threat ends up being a dirty bomb is detonated in Dallas. I'm thinking you don't want to drive through Dallas and through the fallout, and maybe East Texas isn't even the place to go now. So if you don't have at least multiple locations and multiple routes, you're going to have problems there. So we do get this overlap with energy and shelter. And shelter, again, is the one that I think people take for granted because they have a home. With energy... I'm a big believer in alternative sources of energy like solar and wind. But here's the thing, guys. 
I could care less about the polar bears. I am not trying to save a polar bear with my windmill. I'm trying to cut my electric bill. I'm trying to reduce my dependency on the system. And I look at investing in alternative methods of energy production this way. Most people live their entire lives and they buy their power a la carte. So each month they write a check to the electric company. Writing the check for the, the solar or the wind is a lot more expensive. But you buy it once and you have it for the rest of your life. Every time you write that bill, I don't know if you've noticed it, but my cost has been going up over the years. And I think that's a big thing to look at investing in that. So it's not just that the grid goes down because my whole philosophy really revolves around this. Everything you do to prepare for disaster should help you live a better life, even if nothing ever goes wrong. <clears throat> so really, the focus on alternative energy shouldn't be that government is ramming it down our throats, no. but, but rather that you're embracing it because you can lower your, your cost, your personal cost, and provide yourself more independence. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, just in, in, in response to that, forgive me, but I just have to say I think that all this stuff that the government is saying about uh, alternative energy is they're just full of shit. Because if they actually wanted uh, to, to build alternative energy, we just build it. Those clowns spent, what was it, $800 million dollars on the stimulus program? I did a little math. We could have put a two-kilowatt solar system on every owner-occupied home in America with that money. So they don't really care. They're pandering on this stuff, and they're using it as a means to control people and to tax people. I could care less about what they're doing with that other than how it affects me directly. When I look at alternative energy, I see it as a freedom thing. I can either continue to buy my electricity from somebody and pay tax on it, And there's so much of a tax system built around energy. That's why these guys actually are not for alternative energy. They're really not because it's much easier to actually build alternative energy in a distributed model, meaning that you have your production, I have my production, you have your production, that type of thing. In a, a, a large distribution model, the way the grid is set up, Things like the sun not always shining, the wind not always blowing, make these types of, uh, of a power generation much more difficult. It's easy for you to set up a whole bunch of batteries in your home, and when you have surplus, you store it, and when you need the surplus, you draw it. You put that into a grid model. It doesn't work as well. So all of this stuff about saving polar bears I think is nonsense. But I do believe that the most liberating thing you can do for yourself is to cut yourself off of the systems. And note I said systems, not system. Well, tell us more about that. Uh, what what sorts of systems are we talking about here? Well, I mean, food storage alone is, is a big step toward liberty and, and growing some of your own food and having some of your own production. If we, you got to think about the way they all play together. Let's say you want to have salad tonight. So you're going to go down to Kroger and you're going to buy a salad mix. Well, that salad probably, you know, at certain times of the year comes from a place like Argentina. So you, you think it's just the food system you're dealing with right there, but you're dealing with the food system. You're dealing with uh, petroleum because we had to get it here. You're dealing with the electricity necessary to, to, to keep that cold. So that is another system all in of itself. Now, you also have to think about the fact that the guy that stocked it on the shelf, well, he got paid to do that. Of course, he was taxed when he did that. You drove your car there to get the salad. You paid tax on the gas when you filled it up. You gave money to the guy at the uh, gas station. He also had income. He paid tax. On the way home, he decided, I've had a rough day working at the Quickie Mart. I'm going to have a six-pack. So he buys a, a six-pack of beer. There's a tax on that. There was tax on the energy. So the whole, all of these things are interconnected like a hydrant. And if you start, you know, like people say, like half of Americans don't pay tax. Well, I'm sorry. That's just a class war nonsensical statement. 
every time you do anything in this country anymore, you pay a tax. Turn a light on, pay a tax. Pop a top, pay a tax. Uh, open up a, a, a jar of honey and put it in your tea. You've paid a tax. And that taxation is, is dangerous in two ways as far as I'm concerned. One, it reduces your own income, so your own power, so what you can do with your money uh, is devalued. But it also empowers a government that's run amok. I know that's really not what we're here to talk about today, um, but that's well, exactly what it does. Hearing about that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it does because you think about this: every dollar you pay in tax is is a two-edged sword. It's one dollar you don't have to further your own liberty, and it's one dollar government has to encroach upon your liberty. And I don't think most people realize the two sides of that coin. They either mm -hmm. focus on what the government's doing or what they're losing. When you put the two together, you basically get three. Right, the sum is more than its parts in that type of a scenario. Because I've, it's like you're in battle, and I don't just take my armor off. I take my armor off, and I hand it to my enemy who didn't have armor. Right. And now we're going to fight. Gee, that wasn't a good idea. Unfortunately, we have to give our armor away at gunpoint. But every the reason I bring this up is every step you take toward that liberty, every step you take at separating yourself from the system, how much taxes there on the bell pepper from your backyard or the lettuce from your backyard. See, it's, it seems such a simple thing. I go pick the lettuce, the tomato, and the pepper, and I make the salad. I don't go to the grocery store. But I've put a chink in that entire interconnected web of all that system of government support, and I've kept the money for myself. So now I can use it in my own way. And now maybe I go out and when I need to buy something, I buy it for cash. I buy it locally. I buy it used. There's no sales tax on it. If we all did a little bit of that, all of these people holding up signs and yelling on billboards, we could do more to curtail what the government's doing by changing our behavior than expecting to change theirs because it ain't going to happen. Right. I don't think they're going to repeal taxation anytime soon. No. And I don't see any evidence Obama's pushing for a smaller, more responsible government either. No, he might say he is, but uh, actually no. he doesn't even say it. No, he doesn't. One of the, one <laughs> of the, things, one of the other things you mentioned was uh, protection. Absolutely. And I, I presume by that you mean personal protection. I mean personal protection, but I think I mean it far more than a gun. Let, let's even start with a gun. Okay, the first thing you have to understand about owning a gun is if you have a gun and you don't own enough ammo to, to run that gun in, in a hostile situation, you have a very expensive club, uh, and you would be better off going out and buying a little Louis, Louisville Slugger for that for that means. So we got to have ammo. But if you don't know how to use it, you have a very dangerous weapon that you're probably more likely to hurt yourself or hurt others with, or even if you don't hurt anybody with, you'll draw the weapon in a time where it actually is called for. You'll make that call right, but you won't be able to pull the trigger. And I think a lot of us have a lot of bravado. We watch Schwarzenegger and all these guys on TV, and they shoot him up, and we think we'd be that way. Taking a human life is, is way different than most people think it is. And if you don't have military or law enforcement training, you need to get your mind right around that and get good quality safety and good quality tactical training. But that's one thing. If you only carry a gun, it's a hammer. Every single problem you'll ever run into looks like a nail. So, for example, one day I'm taking a walk up at my place in Arkansas. The neighbor's dog comes running down. It's a pit bull. She's very, very upset and angry and wants to bite everybody. And she lays her head low to the ground, and we stand her off. I've got my hand on my, my uh, 9mm on one side, and I've got a, a, a thing of pepper spray on the other. I hit her in the nose with a little pepper spray. That was enough. She turned around and went away. Much easier conversation to have with the neighbor. Dude, I sprayed your dog with some pepper spray. Rather than walking up with a dog bullet-ridden in your arms and going, dude, sorry I shot your dog. Now, that was a dog. It could have just as easily been a confrontation with another human being. 
if my life's in danger or somebody else's life's in danger and I have no other choice, I'll take a life to save my own or another innocent person. I'll do it. I know I'll live with the regret. And I think that's a big difference for me and a lot of people. I know the regret will be there, but I'll do it. If there is any way I can avoid that, I want to do that. So it's not just about guns. It's not just even about pepper spray or other non-lethal means of defense. It's about having certain rules and codes that you run your life by. Uh, one of my favorite people that does firearms training is Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Self-Defense. His statement is, we don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people ever. And a lot of that, you know, a little of that goes a long way. So staying out of the way. Also having a plan. What do we do if somebody's trying to get into the house? What does everybody do? It's real easy to say, well, I'd just get my gun and wait in a dark corner. Well, what if your kid's down the hall in the other room? You can't wait because while you're waiting, your kid's being killed or kidnapped or raped. There's that little girl, uh, Elizabeth Smart, in Utah, who was pulled out of her window in a matter of seconds and gone for years. So that kind of thing can happen. So we have to have a plan. If somebody comes in the house, what do the kids do? Where do the kids go? If you know where they go and they do what they're supposed to do, I also have to, don't have to worry. If I do have to shoot the scumbag and that bullet goes through his back and through that wall, my kid's not on the other side of that wall. So we have a protocol for, for security as well. Then we also have to be smart. Let's say that all things have broken down. It's a Katrina, not the world, but it's a Katrina level event. You have alternative energy. You have food. Your life is good. Do not be out in your yard having a freaking picnic in the middle of a calamity. Don't have your chimney with a bunch of smoke pouring out in the middle of the evening. Don't be running your generator late at night just so you can watch, you know, cartoons with the kids. There is a time to be out and about and helping others, and there's a time to pull back and take a low profile. And a lot of this stuff really is just common sense. But the big thing with firearms, you got to get training. I hear people all the time, I own this gun, this gun, and this gun. I'm thinking about buying another gun. What do I buy next? And I say a firearms training course. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mention that because uh, I know a lot of people will say, you know, I've got three kids and uh, I've, I've got 15 guns and I have a 4,000 square foot home and I'm going to defend it. Yeah. You know, with me and my wife who weighs 100 pounds soaking wet and, and three, you know, sub-teen children. Yeah. Yeah, when, when the mob of 500 people descend upon your house because you're the ones with the lights on uh, you know, having a barbecue. If you have a mob of 500, the best thing you can do is extract yourself from the situation. You're not going to hold that off. Right, run, run. If There's you, a time to run. Unless you have like four old special forces buddies and all of you have defensive positions set up and sectors of fire, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, forget about it, um, you're, you're not going to hold that off. And you still might not. Right. I mean, now if you if we were allowed to have M60s or something, you could you could do a lot of damage and change a lot of minds. The small band may be deterred, but in a large force on force engagement type of scenario, like we see in the movies where people are holed up in a house, you're at an inherent disadvantage because the people coming after you can probe you and probe you and probe you and find your weaknesses. And if they know what they're doing, that's what they'll do. You can be there for days. They need one good day. You can win every battle and lose one. And it just is not realistic. Even the classic break-in scenario. Somebody's going to break in and I'm going to shoot them up. And you've got those three kids in that 4,000 square foot house. Um, it doesn't work that way. You're better off at preventing people from getting in in the first place. Things like plants with a lot of briars and stickers and things like that around your window. Good door locks. Alarms. I think alarms are so the cops will come clean the mess up. But it, it doesn't hurt to have one. One of the best defense things you can have is a good dog. And it doesn't have to be an attack dog, a loud, yippy, yappy, noisy dog that goes nuts when they hear the slightest pin drop. 
Criminals want silence. Uh, most criminals that break into homes that are professionals, they actually do it during the day while you're there and you don't know it. What they'll do, a lot of times people are at home, they don't lock the doors when they're at home in the daytime. They slip in the door, they go right into the master bedroom, they lock the master bedroom door, they close it. So mom or dad goes to the door and mom and dad argue about who locked the door. Well, while they're arguing about it, he's cleaning out the jewelry and the money because everything's in the master bedroom anyway. Right. Goes out the window. By the time they get in there, if he does his job right, he doesn't ransack the place. He might have took grandma's jewelry and, and all kinds of family heirlooms. And it's two days later that mom realizes, hey, the jewelry box is empty. You didn't lock the door. I didn't lock the door. Somebody was in here and stole everything. That's a professional cat burglar. And there's guys that have done that. I watched an interview with one guy. That was his M.O. He robbed the Kellogg family that way. Now, he would have never got in wow. there at night. He would have never got in there at night. But at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he walked right in the place, and he cleaned them out for about $30,000 worth of jewelry in about five minutes. And you can you can definitely see that there's a role for proper firearms training, as, as recently demonstrated in Florida with the Beauty Queen and her, her uh, 38 caliber pink her pink thirty-eight caliber. Oh right, a guy yeah. broke in and was wrestling with her boyfriend, and yeah. she was able to shoot him. Yeah, he, he gave her enough time to get to her gun, and, and, she, and she shot him. And I think that's great. I am not a fan of the pink guns. I just <laughs> there there is a time to draw a weapon and fire it, and there's also a time where you draw a weapon to to, to disarm a, a suspect who is somebody's with a knife and they're they're thirty-five feet away. Good luck getting to me. I mean, seriously, unless the guy's like a martial artist or something. But if you ever are in that standoff situation, you want to be taken seriously, and I just don't take pink guns very seriously. <laughs> but, ladies, if you like them, they're fine. But I just always – I also look at it this way. A gun isn't a toy. and we start cutesying up a gun, we're taking a gun toward a toy. It's kind of like how I feel about, like, um, schnapps, like blueberry schnapps or something. Alcohol is not candy. Right, and we, I'm all for having a beer or a whiskey and soda or something like that. When we turn alcohol into candy, we encourage abuse. I think when we start turning a gun into more of a toy, we encourage not taking it as seriously as we should. Guns are deadly serious because they're capable of taking a life, including your own. The other thing you got to understand, you got to start carrying a gun. You better be prepared for any conflict you're ever in from that point forward to be an armed conflict. There will be a gun in every fight you're involved with because you brought it, and just because you brought it doesn't mean it's going to always be in your hands. So things like retention holsters and just that awareness. And with security, the big, big thing, situational awareness. I, I said it earlier about stupid places, stupid people, and stupid things. It's also just being somewhere out of your element and getting the feeling like something's wrong here. When you get that feeling, don't try to be a brave badass. Turn around and go home. That feeling is the same one I talked about earlier where the leopard's in the grass. You don't run, you don't panic, because if that leopard's in the grass and you panic... And you run, what's he going to do? He's going to chase you. Chomp, and you're done, right? That's right. You back off slowly and controlled and evaluate the situation. And even if he does jump, you're better prepared to deal with it. If you just like a kid with a dog, the dog's growling at the kid, the kid runs. The, the dog even wasn't going to bite him in the first place. It, it turns the predator on. So when you're in that situation, if you look panicked, criminals work the same way. They have that reptilian brain. And when you run, they attack. When you look aware and you look like you're paying attention and you look like you're extracting yourself, they wait for another mark. Right. They want a soft target. They don't want to fight. It's they not. absolutely want a soft target. And some of them are dumb enough to think women are the soft target, and they find out the hard way. There was You mentioned Florida with this pink revolver. There was a lady back, I was a kid. I mean, this had to be back in the 70s. And uh, this guy tried to rape her, and she, based, she had a 25 auto uh, in her pants, and she feigned compliance. 
and she just just like once she realized she couldn't fight him, just laid down and used the feigned compliance to get the pistol out. And when he was pushing himself on top of her, she pressed it to his forehead and pulled the trigger. And he ended up kind of in a semi-vegetative state, sort of kind of coming back. And there was um, a district attorney down there that needed to lose his license that actually tried to prosecute her unsuccessfully. And she was asked in a court of law, what do you regret about this situation? And this guy's sitting over there in a wheelchair. And she said, my boyfriend didn't buy me a 38 instead of a 25 because he'd be dead now and we wouldn't be doing this. And uh, at least Florida has intelligent juries. Yeah, that's a yeah. tough lady there. I <laughs> do not want to cross paths with her. Well, and, and hopefully, see, every time that happens, it, 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 it de-incentivizes the criminal behavior. You ask criminals what they're afraid of, it ain't cops. It's armed citizens and it's dogs. They're scared of dogs. They don't, especially big dogs like German Shepherds and uh, you know uh, Rottweilers. And uh, I'm not a big fan of pit bulls, but any kind of a big guard dog with a with a Shepherds and Rottweilers and curs uh, uh, all have this. Even when they're not trained attack dogs, they have this instinct to defend and protect the family that's in all of them. And they're they can even be timid around the family when you you scold them or something, but. You put them in a situation where they know, especially a kid's threatened, and they're the most courageous animals out there. I, Great I mean, to we, have. We grew up with uh, Australian sheepdogs. Yeah. And they were incredible family uh, dogs. They Any kind of herding dogs the same way. Very, very loyal. I mean, they would be very timid around children in the family. Correct. Uh, but anybody that they didn't know, oh, they, they weren't yippy at all. They got low and mean yeah. real fast. Yeah. And that's there's a lot to that, um, and kind of the, the 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 other thing is with security, and this is why it gets glossed over. It's not something we have to think about on a daily basis. We have to feed ourselves, even if we're on food stamps. We have to go to the store and get the food, and we have to eat it. Water, even if you know we have free water because we're living in government housing, we have to turn the faucet on and drink it. Security is basically provided for most Americans, and it's fairly invisible to us because a lot of it is, de is uh, deterrent-based at this time. Cops pretty much show up after the crime, but they will show up, and if they catch you, they will throw your ass in jail. So people are not real hip to go out and start robbing people on a daily basis while law enforcement is active. And unless the guy's writing you a ticket, you probably don't notice a lot of cops on a daily basis, but they're there. Put them in a situation where the resources are thin and the criminal element knows they're thin, and now you have to provide your own security. So that's why it gets glossed over, and it's absolutely why it shouldn't. Well, you know, I know um, a lot of this interest that's developed in the last few years around survival, because I think that there's... I've seen certainly a, re a revival in, in interest in this, and I, I mean it, it, the history of it goes way back. But but there's been a renewed interest since the financial crisis, and I think since the election of our current president. Because I know personally, I have been in gun stores where I've seen 70 plus year old couples in there trying to buy 50 cows, mm -hmm. uh, literally, <laughs> and, and they were serious about it. I mean, you know, a uh, little old lady's five foot tall, you know, and she's saying, yeah, I can shoot it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and I think that goes to the heart of what you're saying about uh, societal collapse and police being thinned out yep. and, and there being a certain element that knows that the resources are stretched. Correct. I mean, and then the more we have economic decline, the more people are stressed. They're... There are people who, no matter what you do to them, are good, upright people, and they are the majority, and they will not harm another person unless that person means them harm. 
But then there's this element, and there's like the 1% of complete scum. They're the people that commit crimes. If you gave them money, they'd still be out committing crimes. And then there's about another 2% that are pretty active criminals, but they're active criminals because their life is tough, and, and they're in a situation where they don't know another way. There's about 10% of the society that pretty much doesn't behave criminally because they're afraid and they're deterred. And as soon as you take away that deterrent, they move right down to that bottom 3%. And those are the people we really have to be concerned with. And what we have to realize is it takes one second for your life to be gone. And you can be as brave as you want. And I hear fathers say stuff all the time, like, I'd lay down my life for my kids. I appreciate the sentiment, but my question to you is, and then who's going to take care of them after you're dead? See, keeping your family alive that's is right. keeping yourself alive. And that's why bravado goes out the window because, you know, if you're alone and you want to behave that way, that's fine. But if you've got anybody else depending on you, you're as responsible for your own life as you are theirs. Because the minute you're gone, they lose that resource, they lose that support. And if we're in a big disaster, then that might as well be a death sentence to them. If you've got a six-year-old kid with no father to take care of him, and there's, you know, absolutely, collapse. Absolutely. They'd be probably, I hate to say it, but they'd be better off if the, the person perpetrating the crime went ahead and killed them right away. Because otherwise they're going to lay there scared you know, and eventually starve to death or die or or end up harming themselves in some way that is eventually fatal if help doesn't get there. And it does happen to people. Um, it's not what I focus on. I try to focus on, with my work, being a very, very empowering uh, thing. Preparedness is empowering. It reduces your dependence. It increases your liberty. Um, it increases your self-sufficiency and your self-reliance. By the way, self-sufficiency and self-reliance are actually two different things. I heard uh, a, a really good uh, quote by a, a survivalist, uh, Cody Lundeen. Really great uh, guy. Uh, who said, um, the, the, more you love, the more you know, the less you need. Correct. And I, I love that saying. I mean, uh, that, I think that goes right to the heart of what you're talking about. Here. Yeah, there's a huge skills-based thing here. I mean, back in the 1960s, most American fathers, when something broke in the home, they didn't call a guy. So it's not just about survival skills. It's about basic capability. I mean, if you go into most homes in the Northeast today, you'll see that god-awful paneling everywhere. It's because the guy didn't know how to plaster, but he could just put up paneling. And when the paneling looked bad, he just left it there and threw another layer up. But he got it done. If his carburetor had a problem in his car, he pulled the cover off and started tapping on it with a screwdriver and turning a few screws, and eventually he got it to run. Well, we got to a point where the cars are computerized, the homes are computerized, the refrigerators are computerized, and you got to have a computer degree to do most of this stuff. So as some of those skills became, even on some level, unnecessary, we lost the mentality of, I'll do it for myself, I'll fix it myself. Call a guy used to me, my buddy Bubba, uh, really knows outboard motors, and I'm having a problem with my outboard motor. I'm going to call Bubba, give him a six-pack of beer, he's going to come over here and show me how to fix it. Call a guy means today I take the outboard motor into the shop and I pick it up four months later after fishing season's over because there's a backup right. for somebody to work on it. It's a shortage of marine mechanics. And that is where we, and I use that's an analogy, but it pervades everything in our society today. Something's broken, get somebody else to fix it. Something's broken, throw it away. If you have skills and you have preparedness and you have plan, then when something breaks, you, you go to something else, you repair it, you improvise, adapt, and overcome. And then you feel much more liberated. I'll tell you what, there's part of this is just your quality of life. There's people all over America today that are working for somebody that they, they wouldn't they wouldn't take a leak on to put them out if the guy was burning. 
They really hate the guy that bad. They're a, they're, their jobs are abusive. They don't like what they're doing. They don't see their family. And they tolerate the abuse, and they do it like a scared dog. And they do it because how am I going to feed the family and put food on the table and keep a roof overhead? The more independent and liberated you become, the less likely you are to take that type of abuse. And that either means you quit for a while and go find something else, or you stand up to that situation. You make your, your life better at that place because you actually really want to be there. But most Americans will never experience that because they'll stay passive like sheep. And I think it's time for, for, for especially the men in this country to realize you're not a sheep. You're supposed to be the sheepdog of your family. You're supposed to be the one keeping the wolf away, not cowering with everybody else. Men today have been vastly emasculated by the current political climate. There's no room for it. I, I run my marriage this way. It is a 50.1% dictatorship, and I'm the dictator. I get only 0.1% with that. I'm a big believer in equal rights in a true sense of the word. But when something happens like it's got to be an ice storm and my boss or my wife's boss wanted her to go to work, you're not going to work. Give me the keys. I'm sorry. They're not going to take care of you if you get hit hurt. Now, you can call me a chauvinist for that. I look at it as I'm taking the responsibility of the head of the household. When a call needs to be made, I'm going to make it. And if I'm not willing to do that, how can I say I'm willing to put down a bad guy who comes through the front door? It's kind of a radical out attitude in these days, isn't it? I guess it is, but I don't consider it radical at all. I mean, my father taught me that was being a gentleman. Right. You know, you hold the door open for the lady. Uh, you know, you, you do the things that you're supposed to do. You pull a chair back. And there are certain things that men are better at than women. And frankly, guys, there's a lot of things that women are better at than we are. It's not sexist to say that a woman generally is better with compassionate nature, especially like kissing boo-boos on a kid. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. And there's guys that can do it, but they're not the majority. And there's women that can stand up with a an armed force and do the job of a soldier, but they're not the majority. We were made differently, and in a family unit, it makes, and it's not even a family unit, it's in a team, any kind of team. If the three of us were stuck somewhere, first thing I'm going to start doing in a leadership role for survival is I'm going to interview both of you real quick and find out what you know, what you can do, and what you can do better than me. And we're going to divide up the roles and responsibilities of that group based on our experience, our knowledge, and our capabilities. That seems like a great way to run a family to me. Sounds like a great start to a preparedness plan, too, to figure <laughs> out who should be in charge of what job, who forages for food, who provides security, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. I mean, you guys say I'm an expert on survival, and I, I cringe at that because I think there's so much to learn nobody's ever an expert. But I do know more than the average person. Yet in my home, when it comes to logistics and organization, my wife's in charge because I have ADD. I can't stay focused on anything long enough. I'll, I'll start to put this together, and I can figure out everything we need to do, but when it comes down to making a list and getting it done, turn that responsibility over to her because she's better at it. Uh, you mentioned Cody Lundin. Cody and uh, Dave Canterbury had that show together sure. on Discovery, Dual Survivor. If someone's going to make a bow drill fire, it's going to be Cody, Cody, not because Dave can't do it. Because Cody's better at it. When somebody needs to go out and stab a pig and run it down and stab <laughs> it with a knife, it's going to be Dave because <laughs> he's better at that. Not that Cody's not a good trapper or a hunter. Right. Uh, one's just better than the other. So I think that it's unreasonable to expect that we would ignore something as drastically different as the mind and physical capabilities of men and women when making those types of determinations. We don't send the woman out to uh, to lift the heavy box, unless that's all that's there. If the guy's there, he should go out and lift the freaking box. I mean, come on, he's stronger, you know. 
sometimes that's if you've got a big muscular woman that looks like, uh, what do they call it, Cro-Magnon, you know, right? Well, then that's fine. But let's be reasonable with those That's right. There are fundamental metaphysical differences between men and women. And if there weren't, I mean, what a boring place it would be. (laughs) Yeah. I I wouldn't want a, a wife that acted like a man. I really wouldn't. I guess some people would, but not me. Well, I think the French say, viva la différence. <laughs> Let's leave the French out of it, okay? <laughs> oh. So, um, if you said, I know you don't like saying, here's your preparedness plan. Yep. But I know there's always people that say, give it to me anyway. Give, kind of give me a starting point anyway. I think the first thing to do is perform a personal and geographic risk assessment. In other words... What are the things that you're most vulnerable as as a family personally? So how are your finances? How is your job? How's your skill level? If you lost a job, how long would it probably take you to find another one? How up to date is your resume? How good is your business? I know that doesn't sound like survivalism, but it helps you find the weak spots. The geographic questions are things like, well, what are the things most likely to happen here? You guys and I, we're here in Central Texas. We know what's most likely to happen to us. Those big spinny things called tornadoes. We have to dodge those several times a year all through the summer. We're not real worried about being buried under a blizzard of snow. We got, what, 11 inches two years ago? That's the most snow anybody's ever seen here. We're not worried about nine feet of snow here. If we lived in Idaho, we'd probably be worried about nine feet of snow. And since we're at 14,000 feet elevation on the side of a mountain, not real concerned about a tornado. If we live in Miami, we're pretty concerned about a hurricane. If we live in Connecticut, could it happen? Yeah. Is it high on the list? No. If we live in Oregon, we're not worried about hurricanes. So we have to look at the geographic natural disasters, the personal limitations that we have as ourselves, and start shoring those up. I do believe there are fundamental things that are part of any preparedness plan, though. One is food storage. You have to eat every day. So you've got to start on that basic, like I talked about, coffee canning type approach, food storage into the pantry, make the pantry deep. Uh, another thing is you have to have an evacuation plan. Somebody someday may show up at your house, knock on the door and say, you got to go. And sitting around and saying you're a Billy Badass and you're not going to go when a nuclear reactor is about to go, uh, you know, uh, terminal a couple miles away or the tornado uh, sirens are, are, are have blared and your house is wiped out or any scenario where you just need to leave. I mean, people say, when do I leave? You leave when your odds of survival are higher by leaving. And you don't stay when your odds of survival are higher by leaving. And you don't leave when your odds of survival are higher by staying. So having an evacuation plan and a basic food preparedness plan are great places to kind of start out with that. You also have to do the boring stuff. Guys, if you don't have life insurance and you're the primary breadwinner, some big giant dude should come to your house tonight, grab you by the neck and smack you in the head, and do that every day until you set up life insurance for your family. It's so stinking cheap. Real survivalists have life insurance. They have um, college funds for their kids, or they have savings funds for their kids if the kids don't want to go to school. So you, you block up those mundane things as well. Another thing with your finances, if you are living your life by the uh, the cult of uh, uh, you know Susie Orman, which is everything super, oh, uh, all right, and, yeah. and and the concept of you just put your stuff into mutual funds. Dave Ramsey, for example, love the guy's debt advice, hate the guy's investing advice. Put all your money in funds and just wait. Look, you, you, the, the autopilot stuff got a lot of people hurt. This last financial crash. That was the longest telegraphed punch in history. For nine months, every expert with a brain was saying, get your money out. So take control of your finances. That's another thing that you have to do. 
Um, I am a huge believer that you should start doing something to produce some of your own food because it will change the way you think. I'm not going to tell you how it will change the way you personally will think because it's different for everybody. We all can build fires. They'll all look different, but there's a system we follow. You start growing some of your own food, producing some of your own food. You become in touch with the fact that that meat doesn't come wrapped up in a shiny package. You realize that that carrot required somebody to sweat and toil so that you could have that carrot. Then you'll start to pay attention because really how you get started is you become aware. And the more you become aware, the more you'll find solutions to your own problems. The human mind works in a very simple way. If you clearly define a problem, it will turn the computer on and you will begin to seek a solution. If you don't clearly define a problem, the brain becomes confused, it doesn't like it, and it buries it back into our old friend normalcy bias. So if you'll clearly define your risks, it will lead you to your plan. That sounds like really great advice. Um, do you have any last questions? Yeah, I do have a question. Okay. I wanted to drill down a little bit on this issue of finances um, because uh, the, obviously that's been in the news a lot. The devaluation of the uh, the dollar, the the rise in the deficit and debt, national debt. Um, do you see a lot of survivalist um, moving at least some of their wealth into hard assets like gold and silver? Some, and I also want to like broaden that, right? Because you worry about your money being devalued. Well, what better place to put your money today so it's not devalued tomorrow into something you can eat like food? So the big thing with investing as a survivalist is to start understanding what is an investment. If I buy a, a, something that produces energy for me long term, that's an investment. It's probably one of the best investments I can make. It's only going to cost more tomorrow. Gold and silver, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of. I'm a little leery of gold at its current high. Uh, but I'm not an investment advisor. I am much more comfortable with silver as an investment right now for a very simple reason. The delta between silver and gold is historically very high right now. Silver usually tracks much closer in percentage to a value to gold. So either gold is overvalued and silver is safer with a bottom, or gold is fairly valued, which means silver must be undervalued. So it's just a safer mathematical play. It's also, when we look as a survivalist, we have to say, yes, we prepare for the mundane, but we're also aware of the worst case scenario. One of the reasons to have physical metal as a survivalist is we could get into a situation where it is a long-term serious uh, disaster, uh, an economic collapse or something like that. You want to barter and trade with your neighbor. They have beans and rice. You have dried meat. They don't want dried meat. they got plenty of their own. You need a form of currency. So that's when we revert back. And this is not something you're going to see happen initially in the first stages of a disaster, but as society tries to put itself back together, commerce is one of the first things to happen. So let's say you need some beans and rice. How are they going to make change for your one-ounce cougarant? Right? Where silver right. is much smaller, much more sure. divisible. So I've always said 5 to 10% of your money in gold and silver uh, and I really say more, 5 to 10% of your total wealth. So if you have a paid-for home and it's worth $150,000, that $150K goes into your total wealth formula and represents 15K in metal as a an insurance against that value of wealth. So let's say your house falls by 15%. Well, what happened to gold and silver when the housing market fell? Both of them went through the roof. The person that insured their house with 10% of its wealth value in precious metals that lost 15% value of their house broke even, actually did better. 
right? Because they had that silver or gold to fall back on. They could have used it to extract themselves from a mortgage. They could have sold it, converted it to cash. So gold and silver, yes, but one piece of the puzzle. And I'm also not one of these people who says, get rid of all your cash. Cash is king, even in inflationary periods, in modern inflationary periods. If you ask people who went through the inflation in Argentina, yeah, your money was worth less today than the day before, but that's why you needed more of it. Because there were still things available if you had some cash. So some cash on hand, uh, some physical metal, but definitely start to look at your investment portfolio is how you're going to support yourself for the rest of your life. So that includes things like your energy production. That includes things like if you have enough land, putting a mini orchard in your backyard or things like that. Um, that just brought up another subject. You haven't talked much about debt yet. Oh, uh, get rid of it. Uh, that's the short answer. I, I know we're kind of long on your show here, guys, so I don't want to go too long with that. But I think debt is cancer is the best way I can describe it. And there is absolutely no place for it in your life. The only debt that I'm remotely comfortable with is debt on a home and debt on a home where you already have some equity in it. So this buying a home with zero down and, uh, you know, chasing the market up like people did and the mess we ended up in because of it, I'm not for. But if you have a, a house that's a $150,000 house, you're carrying 130k of debt on it and that's your only debt, I think you should try to pay it off early. But it doesn't really concern me. If you have your, your college loan along around so long that you might as well name it and call it a pet, you've got a problem. If you're living on Visa and MasterCard, you've got a problem. And if you look at the mundane things that we talked about, losing that job, having no debt is the first step toward preparing to lose your job. If you have no debt, your expenses are lower. You can get by with less. Um, I've done you know hour-long segments on debt, so we can only go so deep into that. But definitely, it's got to go. All right. Well, before we have you go, is there anything you'd like to plug? I know your website again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, really, I hope your listeners will also check out my show. Uh, we are available on iTunes as well. You can simply search for the Survival Podcast on iTunes, and you'll find us uh, in the iTunes store. It's free, but you know they call it a store. Um, and of course, at www.thesurvivalpodcast.com, you'll find my site. Um, I do have a member support brigade, but I actually find that people are more comfortable participating in that after they get to know the work we're doing and become a little more familiar with that. So I'll just say that it's there and you can look into it. We have a wonderful, wonderful forum, uh, over 7,000 members, and I say there's a Ph.D. in preparedness waiting there for you for free. Anything I don't know, someone in that forum knows. You can find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash survival podcast, and you can find my YouTube channel at YouTube. Uh, YouTube user is uh, Survival Podcasting. And we, we highly recommend uh, all of those avenues to, to get in touch with us. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jack. It's been a great show. Yeah, thank you for coming on. We appreciate having you here on Rational Public Radio. Well, hey, I appreciate it, and I'll be uh, checking your show out as well in the future. I like what you guys are doing here. Thanks, Thanks. a lot. All right, that concludes our interview with uh, Jack Spierka of the Survival Podcast. Uh, we appreciate uh, Jack coming on and sharing all his valuable, valuable information with uh, us and our listeners. Remember, in the future, like us on Facebook, dig us on Dig, spread the word, tell your friends. This is valuable information. We've got to get it out there. Got to change this culture. Let me extend a personal welcome to any of Jack's listeners that are listening to Rational Public Radio for the first time. I really hope you're enjoying this show, and if you do, I hope you will subscribe to it on iTunes. We have a weekly podcast that presents news, current events, from a little bit of an alternative perspective. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay.
Nobody up there cares. They're living for. 